Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our study of the life of Peter, which we've subtitled from fisherman to follower of Jesus. And as we just mentioned, we're, we're switching. We're in kind of an in-between place. Um, we've been studying his life so far from the Gospels, the uh, three, three and a half years right around that, that he spent as Jesus' disciple while Jesus was on earth. He called him. He followed Jesus. He was his disciple. He learned from him along with the rest of the disciples. He did uh, a bunch of things right. He did some things wrong. He said some things right. He said some things wrong, just like the rest of us do. And we've learned a lot from um, his example, okay? And we've taken them already now all the way up through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, just a quick review, you may remember that before Jesus was arrested, Jesus had foretold that all the disciples would abandon him, and Peter says, I never will. And he said, Peter, in fact, you are going to deny me three times, and he swore up and down that he would not do that and boasted about it. And in less than 24 hours, he had done exactly that. He was repentant, though. And uh, Jesus forgave him and restored him to ministry. That was our last lesson from John 21. And we find that from the time Jesus raised from the dead until the ascension, which we're going to read about here in a minute, uh, 40 days, he appeared sporadically to his disciples. A number of appearances. During that time, he, he continued to teach them to prepare them for what we call the Great Commission. He says, after I'm gone, I'm going to send you out. You need to go, share the good news with the world, make disciples wherever you go. And um, so I ask you to turn to Act chapter 1. Our passage is actually um, a little bit further along, but I want to read just a couple of verses. If you're already there and you want to follow along, look at verses 4 and 5. Okay? This is... Um, one of those episodes where Jesus appeared to his disciples, and it says in Acts 1-4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. If you jump down to verses 8 and 9, this may be the exact same day. It may be a little bit later. But it says that they're having this conversation, and Jesus basically they're saying, Jesus, we're going to set up your kingdom now? He says, it's not time yet. Quit worrying about that. you got a job to do. So we get down to verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And they did probably exactly what we would have done. They kept looking. So God had to send angels down and say, go on. He's not coming back right now. Okay. And so they go back to Jerusalem. So um, there we have some, some information. One of the last times um, that Jesus was with them said, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. I promised I was going to send him. I'm going to. And then right before he sent it to heaven, basically repeated that in a little bit different words, but to explain that 
the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is coming so that you can be my witnesses as you go out into all the world. Right here in Jerusalem, Samaria, which was basically the enemy. So taking the gospel to people you don't like and they don't like you. And then on into the rest of um, the world. The title of our lesson tonight is Peter's Emerging Leadership. Peter's Emerging Leadership. Um, we're in that in-between time, okay? Ascension, Pentecost hasn't happened, the Holy Spirit hasn't come. That'll be our next lesson um, in Peter's life, okay? But they're in the in-between time here now. When Peter was a disciple with Jesus and the rest of the disciples and following along, Peter was kind of like the... Um, uh, undeclared leader. I say undeclared because there's nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus said, Peter, you're the leader. There's no place in the Gospels where the other disciples says, Peter, you're the leader. But yet we can tell from Peter's actions and reactions and the things he says and what's happening that Peter is kind of the undeclared leader of the disciples. And we are going to see as we continue into Acts that he is one of the primary leaders of the early church. All right, but right now he's kind of emerging as a leader. And it's interesting because two of the things that Jesus have said to, that Jesus had said to Peter in recent lessons, he doesn't call him a leader, but he says things that kind of sets him up to be one of the primary leaders. We find them in Luke 22 verses 31 to 32. And that was what I referred to earlier where, where Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me. All right. Um, but in some explanation of that, Jesus said, Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That's plural. All of you. Okay? Satan wants all you guys. All right? That he might sift you, all of you guys, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, single, you, Peter. Okay? I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. His faith didn't fail. But he did the wrong thing. I mean, you know, you can do the wrong thing, and it doesn't mean that God kicks you out of the kingdom, and you're no longer a son or a daughter, and all that kind of stuff, okay? But he says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, he's not calling him a leader, but he's kind of putting him in that position, like, you're going to be in a position where you can do something about this, where you can help yourself and help the rest of the disciples recover from the mess you're going to make, if I could paraphrase it that way, Okay? And then from our last lesson in John 21, when Jesus is talking to Peter, he says, Peter, do you really love me? Do you love me more than these? You know, Do you love me more than the rest of the disciples love me? Because that's basically what he was boasting about before. I love you more than the rest of them. I won't deny you. Anybody did. And Peter says, yes, you know, I do. And Jesus asked him three times, and his answer was three different answers that are all very similar. The first one was feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So again, he's putting Peter out there as this is what you're supposed to do, and this is a leadership position. So we have Peter kind of in a developmental situation where his leadership is growing and it's emerging. And so we're going to see what happened in those 10 days between when Jesus ascended and when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to see that Peter does take the lead in one particular um, decision, but I believe that probably... He had a great impact on everything that happened in that 10 days. And so did the other disciples, but I'm just saying, he's, he's emerging as the leader here. And so we're going to take a look at what happened in those 10 days from the perspective of Peter's leadership. Okay, so let's look at our primary passage now, which is Acts 1, starting in verse 12. All right? So they've just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. They waited a few minutes. The angel said, forget it. He's not coming back right now. 
Go back to town. So they go back to Jerusalem, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, which basically means it's about three quarters of a mile away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room. We've heard an upper room before, right? We don't know if this is the same one, but it could be. It could be the same upper room where they met the night before Jesus was betrayed. You know, um, it may be a different one. Uh, there's another room that's mentioned later in Acts that belongs to Mark's mother. I forget her name. It's probably Mary, since most people were named Mary back then. But anyway, <laughs> um, it could be that one. I don't know. But they're staying in this upper room. So it says they went to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas son of James. These are the 11 disciples. You know, the 12 minus Judas, okay? All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Who are these women? A lot of women are mentioned in the Gospels. They traveled with Jesus. Some of them supported him and his disciples from, apparently they had some some means, some wealth. Okay, they helped with the ministry that way. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, which is interesting, Because before Jesus died and rose again, his brothers thought he was crazy and all that kind of stuff. Um, If you have studied the resurrection, you know that it says specifically that Jesus appeared personally and individually to his brother James. And James will later become the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter decides to take off and go evangelize the world. Okay, But anyway, so his brothers are now among the believers. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, keep keep, keep in mind, Judas was one of the 12 disciples and... He cast out demons and he healed people with Jesus' authority, but he ended up being a traitor. He turned Jesus in. Anyway, verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Ekladama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell in Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we're looking at what the disciples, what the apostles, what this group of 120 are doing in these ten days. But Peter steps forward as a leader. Okay? So, the disciples are waiting. We know, looking back, it's going to take 10 days. They had no idea how long it was going to take. What are they waiting for? The Holy Spirit. 
The coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you are to go and wait for the promise of the Father. And he called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What did they do while they were waiting? Prayed. That's the first thing we think of, isn't it? There's good reason for that. That's what it says. <laughs> All right. Was that the only thing that they, they did? They encouraged one another? Yeah. Made some decisions? Well, we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Who decided what they should do? Well, Peter is involved in putting forth a situation that they got to make a decision about, but there's a good chance that Peter had a big influence in what they did because he's emerging as the leader. Again, that's where our title comes from. So I have this listed here under Peter's leadership, and I've got six things that they did while they were waiting. Okay? Six things that they did while they were waiting between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. Under Peter's leadership, number one, the believers obeyed Jesus. You say, where did you get that from? I don't remember where it says that they obeyed Jesus. In what way did they obey Jesus? They waited. Exactly. I mean, was there something else they could have done? Yeah, just about anything, right? I mean, they could have said, well, I thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom now. I give up. Let's go back to fishing. They already tried that one. That didn't work, right? Or they could have just said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really mean that. Or, or, you know, he said, go and wait. Well, what if they got tired of waiting after three days? Well, wait a minute. Something's not, something's not right. Um, maybe we should just, just go ahead and do what Jesus told us to do about taking the gospel and making disciples because he didn't send the Holy Spirit. But no, they waited. As I said, they didn't know how long it was going to be. They didn't know he's coming on the day of Pentecost. All right. So they waited. They obeyed Jesus. They did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. He said, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you've received the promise of the Father, till you've received the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had a situation where you just knew, you just knew that you knew that you knew that God was going to do something, but it didn't happen as quickly as you thought it was going to happen? Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to kind of get ahead of God and just go ahead and do something else? I won't ask for any testimonies for the times that you did do that, it caused problems, but all of us could probably have a testimony like that. But they obeyed Jesus. They could have just gotten busy telling everybody about Jesus, about the good news, about his death and resurrection and what that meant without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But I have a feeling they probably wouldn't have been near as effective. But they waited. Now, as we think about our own life, how do we know when to wait and when to just get busy. As we're going through life and we're waiting on something, how do we know how long to wait, um, when we should stop waiting, when we should just go ahead and get busy? Vita? Okay. So for those who have been through it before, who have known the Lord for a while and you have been waiting and you've seen him come through, that makes it a little bit easier. Well... Maybe it makes it uh, easier for you to know I need to keep on waiting, right? It doesn't mean I'm just make it easier to wait, but you've had experience to know sometimes it takes longer than you think it should or you think it would, all right? But how do we know when it's time to stop waiting? You don't, okay? So basically you keep waiting until you get the answer. You keep waiting until you get what's promised, right? All right. Here's the thing. When it's clear what God wants us to do, we need to do it. What was clear at this moment? It was clear that they were supposed to wait. And so that's exactly what they did. They didn't do anything else. And the same thing is true for us. 
that if there's something we believe God has promised us or, or, or whatever and we're waiting, um, we just need to keep on doing what God has already told us to do. We talked about this a little bit with the last lesson, okay? Um, you know, God's given us a lot of instructions in his word. Um, I mentioned this in the last lesson that there's this saying in the military, anyway, obey the last given orders, all right? So go ahead and obey whatever God's already told you, and on the things you don't know for sure, just wait, okay? All right. Now, something that's really interesting, uh, I'll just throw this in as a side point, something for us to think about. There are times that we're waiting for something, and God's actually waiting for us in the sense that we want God or we, to do something or we think that he will do something or we think we've got a promise from him, but he's also told us that there's something we should be doing about it. So we need to make sure that we're not just waiting because we don't want to do what he said we should do. You see what I'm saying? So there's that other side of the coin. If there's something he's already told you about, do your part and then wait on him. Um, if you think about it, why should he give us more instructions? Why should he do something for us if we're not already doing what he's already told us to do? So, so the first thing that they did is they obeyed Jesus. The second one is the one that we mentioned because it's the first one that pops out in the text. All right, The believers prayed persistently. They prayed persistently. We see that in verse 14. It says, all of these, the 11 disciples, Mary, the women, um, Jesus' brothers, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Were devoting themselves to prayer. Um, you know, I, we've mentioned before that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote Acts, and that's kind of a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. But if we go back to the last chapter, you don't have to, I'll read it to you, but you can if you want to. So the last chapter of Luke, he, he, he actually puts a little bit of an overlap in there, okay? The last chapter of Luke is Luke 24, and in verse 50, he's talking about Jesus getting ready to ascend into heaven. And it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Okay? So we have a little bit of overlap there. Luke ended his gospel talking about the ascension and them going back to town, and then he started the book of Acts with the same thing. But we see in both these passages that they are actively involved in seeking God, okay, and in praying. And I use the word persistently because that's the word that's kind of used here when it says he, they prayed continually. That's what Luke said uh, in his gospel. Um, in Acts here, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. That word devoting means to persist in some activity to be busily engaged in. So it wasn't like, okay, well, let's say a five-minute prayer, and then we'll go play dominoes until the Holy Spirit shows up, okay? They're actively involved. They're continually um, and on an ongoing way praying. Now, did Jesus ask them to pray? Do we have recorded that Jesus asked them to pray? No. I mean, he might have, but what? Yes, I was going to ask, so why did they pray? They had seen that through Jesus' example, you know, and also from his teaching. They had learned that prayer was important. In fact, Luke in his gospel, somewhere around chapter 7 or 8, I think it is, the disciples actually come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And that doesn't mean that they didn't know how to pray at all. They were good Jewish boys. They grew up praying. But they saw that Jesus had something different, okay? And um, the results were different. And that's when Jesus taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer, 
Um, so Jesus had taught them how to pray. Jesus had taught them many parables and teachings about prayer, and they had seen Jesus' example. So they prayed. I also have a feeling, I'll come to you in just a second, Peter. I also have a feeling that Peter was thinking, the biggest problem I ever had was because I didn't pray when I was supposed to. <laughs> so it could have been that he's thinking, we need to pray. <laughs> we need to pray. What were you going to say, Vita? Oh, you were going to bring that up about how Peter had gone to sleep. Yeah, yeah, when Jesus had asked them to pray, and they didn't, and it led to all kinds of problems. So, anyway. So it says they prayed continually uh, in the gospel. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, we already talked about this a little bit. Does that mean they did absolutely nothing else? No, because we know they did some other stuff, right? Um, just reading the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, uh, Acts says that they were in the upper room. Luke says they were in the temple. So there must be a contradiction in God's word, right? No, this is 10 days. They were staying in the upper room, but they would still go to temple because that's what they did as good Jewish people, okay? Um, so they were doing various things during these 10 days, but the focus is they were seeking God. They were praying, okay? Um, we also know that they chose took the time to choose the successor to Judas. We'll get to that in just a moment. But their primary focus is seeking God. And I think that this is kind of the thought, the idea behind what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, when he says, pray without ceasing, okay? Because if you take that literally without any other consideration of other things, it makes it sound like, okay, well, I need to be on my knees 24-7 or however position, whatever position we take in prayer, and all I can do is pray. I can't do anything else. I can't work. I can't eat. I can't. And that's obviously not so. So what do you think Paul actually means when he says pray without ceasing? How would that apply? What would that look like in everyday life? Pray your way through the day. That sounds so beautiful and poetic. What do you mean by that, Vita? Is you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to pray when you get on the freeway, not just because it's crazy, but so you don't sin. <laughs> so you don't sin in what you think and say and do. <laughs> yeah. So just pray over whatever you're doing, whatever comes to mind, whatever. You, you just go through the day aware of the fact that Jesus is with you. God is with you. And you just talk to him throughout the day. Just like if you're home with a family member, a spouse, a kid, whatever, you know, you're going to be saying things back and forth as you go throughout the day. Chris. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because of what Jesus did, we have an open door to the throne room of God. You know, Hebrews says that because of what Jesus did, we can come with boldness and confidence to God. And we can do it all day long, anytime during the day. Okay? Yeah, Joe, what were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Keep your mind stayed on him. Good thought. Good thought. So we have this kind of ongoing attitude or atmosphere in which we just bring everything to God. Um, I shared uh, in the context of a sermon recently. I think things have been so crazy. I can't remember if it was last Sunday or the Sunday before. I don't know. But that just, I just often wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, help me to walk closely with you. And the idea of being aware of your presence and talking to you all the time and bringing you into every aspect of my life. And that's what's behind that. Now, sometimes, if we're not careful, we can use that as an excuse not to have a specific time to really seek God. Well, I just talk to God all the time. You know, so I don't need to worry about having a specific time that I'm more focused or more organized in my prayers or whatever. We need both. 
We need both. And I think that that's what they had. I think that they had times that they were together. They were seeking God at the same time, the same place. But then also it was just an attitude. It was this atmosphere that they lived in during this time. Okay. It's interesting because we've mentioned before in our series on Luke that Luke, more than any other gospel writer, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John, mentions Jesus praying. Okay, every major event in Jesus' life talks about him praying. Well, that carries on into his writing in the book of Acts, too. If you look at Acts, and just do a search sometime, use your electronic device or whatever concordance of pray or prayer in Acts. It's mentioned, I should have looked it up before tonight, I just thought of that, but it's mentioned a number of, uh, several times every single chapter. Every time there's something major going on, either the disciples or somebody's doing something or God's doing something, prayer is always associated with it. The power of prayer. So it's mentioned at almost every important point in the story of God's work in Acts. Okay. The third thing, um, under Peter's leadership, the believers obeyed Jesus, they prayed persistently, and the third one, the believers worshipped. That comes to the passage we read in Luke. It says that they went to the temple. Okay, the temple was where the Jewish people worshipped. All right? And that would be the primary reason why they would go there. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think the idea we get of the prayer that they're doing is they're seeking God and they're saying, okay, God, we're waiting. Jesus said to wait. Send us the promise. Send us the Holy Spirit. We don't even really understand what that means, but send it, you know. But you have to understand that prayer is a whole lot more than just asking God for things or even claiming his promises, all right? It's praising him for who he is. And so it's important, even when we're in a season of waiting um, for God to do something or whatever, that we're not just so focused on what it is that we think he's supposed to do or that we want him to do or what we think he's promised to do for us, but we spend that time to worship him, okay, for who he is. That's one of the things I... I was just thinking as we were singing and we were worshiping at the beginning of our time together tonight, the songs that we sang were all about, uh, you know, a lot of what they were about was who God is, not just what he's done, but who he is, okay? Um, so the believers worshiped. Uh, sometimes we get so caught up in asking God for stuff, we forget to worship him, all right? Another really key factor here, which is pretty amazing, Number four is that under Peter's leadership, the believers were in unity. They were in unity. When we go back to the passage in Acts 1, verses 13 and 14, where it says all these people were in the upper room and they were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer, with one accord. All right? Um, I heard a joke a long time ago when I was a teenager about Sonny's laughing. He must be thinking the same thing about where a Honda is mentioned in the Bible because it says they were all in one accord. Yeah, a Honda Accord. But anyway, you've heard those jokes before, haven't you? Like the one about how David rode a motorcycle because his triumph was heard throughout the land. Anyway, we're not going to get into corny Bible jokes, but that's what comes to mind. Anyway... Make sure you all are awake. But it says they were all in one accord. They were in unity. Okay? They were in unity. Um, they were unified in their attitude, in their spirit, and in their location. And it's interesting that when we look at the next passage, which we'll do in the next lesson in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, 
it starts off in verse 1 by saying that they were all together in one place. I think implied there is more than just location, but their attitude. Now, keep in mind who all is here. There's 120 people here, right? You've got the 11 disciples that are left. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. You've got all these women that have been traveling along with them and that kind of stuff. And you've got a bunch of other followers. We don't know their names, plus the brothers of Jesus. They're all coming from different backgrounds, different perspectives and all that kind of stuff. But even if all you had was the 11 disciples, what is unusual about the fact that they're all in one accord? What? They're being led by the Spirit. The Spirit hasn't come yet, but in a sense they could be. But what's unusual is that they're all in one accord. I mean, did the disciples have a past history of being all in one accord? No. All through the time they're with Jesus, they're fussing and they're fighting and they're arguing about who's the most important and who's going to have the position of authority in Jesus' kingdom and who's going to be the most important, who's going to be on the right hand, who's going to be on the left hand. But here we see that they're in one accord. So even though they've not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit, Okay, I, I agree with Sharon. I think there is some aspect to where they're still already being led by the Spirit and influenced by the Spirit, but they definitely have learned some lessons. Okay, they're in one accord. Um, you know, that's something that Jesus prayed for his followers. I have on your note sheet John chapter 17. You can read that later. Jesus is what they call the Jesus' high priestly prayer. He is praying for his disciples, and he says, Lord, help them to be in unity. And he prayed not only for them, but for us, all the believers, May they be unified. May they be one, Father, like you and I are one. All right? Vita? Yeah, he had definitely settled the issue about whether they doubted whether he rose from the grave or not, you know, in a number of situations, not just doubting Thomas. Okay? But even their ambition of wanting to be first, wanting to be best, wanting to be the most important, um, they're starting to get over that. They're in unity. There wasn't any of that bickering and self-serving activity that we see in their earlier relationships. No boasting or condemnation or putting somebody's self forward. So, but they're together. They're together. And this is important too. You know, each of us needs to have our own walk with the Lord, the own time that we, our own time that we spend with the Lord, but we need to be together too, which I know telling you that's not that big a deal because we're all together tonight. But I'm just saying, you know, we don't need to have Lone Ranger Christians, you know, and, and that includes not just being together for worship, being together to be challenged and study, but to pray together too. Uh, I'll get right to you, Jose. In Matthew 18, verses 19 to 20, Jesus is talking about a specific situation with disciplines, that and the other, but that's where that promise comes from. You've heard before where he says, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so that unity in prayer and seeking God uh, makes a big difference. Jose, what were you going to say or ask? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the unity was part of the process to get them ready to go out on the Great Commission. Of course, the final big deal was the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at the next lesson too. So they're all still in process. Peter is in process of emerging as one of the primary leaders. They're all in process of learning what it means to serve God together without the bickering and the fighting and all that kind of stuff. And the Holy, and this doesn't mean that they're all going to be perfect after the Holy Spirit comes. But with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that just gives them even more um, um, cohesiveness and, and power and confidence. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts after that, looking at Peter's life primarily, because that's what we're studying, that they go out with boldness. Okay, They've been changed. Peter's been changed. We're going to see some big changes in Peter's life. But one thing I see that's really interesting is that you know God can do anything he wants 
without anybody else's involvement. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But we also see taught and examples given throughout Scripture that there are certain things that God's not going to do all on his own until somebody asks him. You know, God doesn't need us to pray. But he is so structured the way he created this world that there are certain things he's going to do in response to his people's prayer. But if you, there's no principles stated as such in God's word except for the one I just read about where two or three agree together, you know, that kind of thing. But it seems indicated in scripture that there are things that we can just pray for all by ourselves. God hears us and God will answer according to his will and kind of stuff. But there is something special about two or more or a group of people getting together and praying together. Um, so we see that they did this. Um, in the early church, all right? Number five, the believers consulted God's word. They consulted God's word. Now, we see that come out when Peter stands up and, say, and basically says, hey, while we're waiting, <laughs> we got something we need to take care of. And he jumps into this whole situation about Judas, but it's really interesting that he says in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. It shows that Peter definitely believed that God's that Scripture was God's word and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because he just came right out and said it. It says, David said this, but it was the Holy Spirit. It was God speaking through him. All right? And he recognized that all the stuff that had happened to Jesus was in fulfillment of what God had said in the Old Testament. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because... The Bible says that those 40 days that Jesus spent with the disciples from time to time between the resurrection and the ascension, one of the things he did was show them in the Old Testament how everything that happened to him had been prophesied and foretold and foreshadowed throughout the whole Old Testament. But while they're waiting, Peter says, listen, you know what? There's some other things that the Bible says too. And I think there's something we need to do about that. And he quotes from Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. And these are both psalms that are written by David about David. David being God's king, God's man. And there are people, wicked people, traitorous people, who claim to be friends, but they're coming against him. And because of that, God's judgment is going to come on them. And Peter says, what happened to David, what happened to David is what happened to Jesus. And see, Jesus was considered kind of the fulfillment of everything that was said about David because he was David's uh, ultimate descendant. He was the one that was going to be king, okay? And so he says the principles we see in God's word is that when wicked people, when when evil people come against God's chosen one and, and they suffer because of that, God's judgment's going to rest on them. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. And when we look at this passage of scripture, it says, may somebody else take his place. And he came to the conclusion, again, possibly being, being led by the Holy Spirit and interpreting uh, God's word here, that we need to find somebody to take Jesus Judas's place. Okay, But he found that out because they were in, interacting with God's word. Okay, And so they had consulted God's word. And that leads to the last thing, and that is the believers took care of business. Okay, And that was to choose, actually that's the wrong word, they did not choose the successor to Judas. Okay? The passage says that God chose him, but they had to find out who that successor was. All right? Now, before we go on to talk about exactly how that happened and, and, and what Peter said here, some people said, okay, this is another place where there's a contradiction in God's word. 
Because here in Acts, it says that Judas fell headlong and burst open so his intestines fell out and all that kind of stuff. But Matthew said he hanged himself. And so he said, there's another example of a contradiction in the word of God. But it's not a contradiction in the word of God. You know, you have two different people telling things from different perspectives. And there's a couple different ways that this can be explained. One is that Judas hung himself and basically got hung out to dry. <laughs> hung there for a while. <laughs> I shouldn't be making jokes like that. But anyway, hung there for a while in the heat of the sun over a period of time. His body bloated and exploded and he the rope rope broke. He fell, whatever. Um, so, I mean, there's a number of ways I can explain. In fact, you know, it talks about how Jesus hung himself. Um, in their culture, if you were impaled on a stake, that was considered you were hung. Judas could have impaled himself on a stake, and he would have been, it, it, it could have been described as that he hung himself, and that over time then he just, yeah, what was described in the book of Acts. So there's a number of ways that both of those descriptions could be totally and completely true of what happened to Judas. And I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, sometimes you hear about somebody say, well, there's another contradiction in the word of God. And there's, for every single quoted contradiction I've ever seen in God's word that's been brought up to me that I've studied, I've always been able to find a logical explanation for it. Logical, reasonable explanation for it. Okay? So, don't believe, if you come across something like that, somebody says something like that, just, hey, I'm going to go research that. And I'll let you know. And so go research it, you know? All right. Now, this thing that Peter's proposing, okay, based on what I see in Scripture and this, that, and the other, we need to choose somebody to take Judas's place. Why, other than the fact that he thinks he sees it in Scripture, he does see it in Scripture, um, other than that, why not just go with the 11 that are left? I mean, yeah, we had one bad apple, but we got 11 good ones, all right? Why not just go forward with 11 disciples, 11 apostles? Janet? They can't go out two by two anymore? Okay, well, there's a practical reason. Yeah? Chris? Let me deal with Chris said first. So that's more of a Jewish thing. You know, you're right. In the Jewish tradition, I think it was that it was, it was a number, specific number, but I think it was 12 men you had to have in a, a town to start a synagogue. I don't know what that's got to do with the 12 disciples, but but it does point out the fact that 12 was a very important number, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel, all right? What were you saying, Sharon? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel? Yes. You see, Jesus had a lot more disciples than just 12. You know, at one time, it's mentioned 72. Um, he's got a whole bunch of disciples that are right here in the upper room besides the 11, all right? Um, but there was something about 12. And as you study Scripture, it seems like God chose 12 specific, or Jesus chose 12 specifically because in a spiritual sense, they were to, to, see, how can I word this? They were to restore Israel spiritually. Okay? And Jesus had even said that one day you guys will rule and reign over the kingdom of God and sit on the 12 thrones. Well, who's going to sit on Judas's? It's not Judas. In other words, in Jesus's scheme of things, it was important that there were 12 disciples. And so Judas needed to be replaced. And keep in mind, they replaced Judas not just because he died, but because he had turned aside, as it says in Acts, from his place, his position, okay? He had turned traitor as an apostle. I mean, they didn't replace all the uh, all the apostles as they died with another one, but they did need to replace Judas. 
And it says there were certain qualifications that they looked for. I was going to ask you what they were, but we got to wrap this up. We're having a good discussion tonight. So the qualifications is they were looking for someone else who had been with them from the very beginning, from the time that John was baptizing people all the way through Jesus's ministry, and they were witnesses to his death and his resurrection. And the reason for that was that all the other disciples had been apart since then, and they wanted another one who could give personal testimony to everything or to most things that Jesus had done and said and to the fact that he had died and he'd raised from the grave. And it says that they came across two men that fit those qualifications. All right? Now, I said something earlier. I saw a couple of puzzled looks on your face that they didn't choose the successor. They didn't. God did. Okay? What they did is they said, here's the qualifications. Who meets the qualifications? There were two men. Then they prayed and they said, God, show us which one of these two that you have chosen. So God chose. They just asked God to reveal it. Now, how did God reveal it? They cast lots. They basically put two names in a hat and tossed them out. Probably more like two pieces of pottery in a jug and tossed it out. And the one came out. Now, that sounds really strange to us. I mean, do we make decisions, spiritual, important spiritual decisions like that now? I can testify we don't do that as elders. But you know what? That was a way that God had dictated in the Old Testament to make certain decisions. In fact, there's a proverb, Proverbs 16.33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They, The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, okay? But they had every belief that... They had every reason to believe that this is the way God has helped his people make choices in the past. And God was involved in it because he's the one that made it to come out the way it did. And he would do it in this situation. So they had every confidence that whatever happened, that was what God had chosen. They hadn't chosen him. Chance hadn't chosen him. But God had chosen him. And I think God honored that. We don't use that system today. We don't see it anymore in the New Testament. In fact, most Bible scholars say once the Holy Spirit came, we don't need it anymore. We are led by God's word and by the Holy Spirit. So we don't need that. Okay. Just throw one other comment out here and then we're going to wrap this up. There are some people that say, well, you know what? They got ahead of God because Paul was supposed to be the 12th uh, apostle. He was supposed to be the one to take the place of Judas. But um, And you can find arguments back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I personally believe that that's not so. Okay. Because nowhere in Acts or any of it does it say that they made a mistake. And not only that, but all the original apostles were tied to having been with Jesus and been personal uh, witnesses of what he said, what he did, his death and his resurrection. Um, now, that was revealed to Paul, but even Paul distinguished himself from the other apostles. He says, they're the apostles. I'm an apostle, but a different one. And I'm an apostle to the Gentiles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't think they got out of order there. So to wrap this up, um, what were they involved in? Uh, again, we're looking at this from Peter's perspective, Peter emerging as a leader. Um, in these 10 days, obedience, prayer, worship, unity, God's word, taking care of business. This is really good advice for any time you're waiting on God for something. When you're waiting on God, don't just sit there, okay? Be obedient to what you already know is true. Worship God, pray, make sure you're in unity with other believers, consult God's word, and do what you know to do, okay? In fact, this is good advice on just how to live life. And as we look at this as a, from the perspective of Peter being a leader, the people that you lead, the people that you have influence over, these are the kind of things that you should lead other people in. A life of prayer, seeking God, worship, being obedient, taking care of business, 
walking in unity with other believers. Amen. Well, we've gone way over. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had in your word tonight, looking at some of the things Peter was involved in as he's becoming a stronger leader and all the things that the believers did while they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would take those things that we studied and especially those that perhaps you laid on our hearts, Lord, about areas maybe we can make some improvement or some adjustment in our own life and that we put it into practice. And Father, we just pray for the leaders that we have in our church, that you would help us to be good leaders, that we would demonstrate and carry out these type of things in our leadership. And Father, we just give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.